Um, if you get under dark skies, a visual experience can, I mean, you can go out every night of your life and not see it all. It's, it's amazing under dark skies, but dark skies are harder to come by and most people can't easily access them, you know, access them, um, just whenever they want, they have to make a trip of it and drive and, and plan. And then the clouds roll in and there are problems associated with it, right? Like things happen that can shut those nights down. Whereas with imaging, there are little, little tricks that you can use like narrow band filters. So who cares if the moon's out? Do you want to take images with your telescope, but have no idea where to get started? Well, then this episode's for you. Beginning imaging on this episode of Space Junk Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. Welcome back, space fans. It's time for another episode of Space Junk Podcast. I'm glad you're here with us. If you are a beginning imager or thinking about maybe you'd like to be an imager in the hobby of amateur astronomy, then this is the episode for you because I'm with my friend Dustin Gibson from OPT, who is the only person that I would actually openly admit knows more about imaging than me. So hi, Dustin, how you doing? I've <laughs> uh, just been more obsessed with it than you have. That's all, Tony. <laughs> Maybe that's it. I do. Uh, I, I said openly admit there's a lot of people that know more yeah. about it than me, but I won't admit to it. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Same here. I feel like uh, this community, I talk to people, I talk to kids now all the time. They just blow me away with their knowledge of this stuff. 12 and 13 year olds that are, are putting me to shame put my images to shame too, which is great. It's exactly what we want. I know. I think more than any other aspect of the amateur astronomy hobby, this is the one that's changed the most. Uh, getting started with taking pictures of the night sky has gotten just orders of magnitude easier over the decades than what it used to be. And so that is an amazing opportunity for people getting started in the hobby now. And hopefully with this episode, we'll get you on the right track again with getting started on this. Yeah, that's the goal. We're going to talk about beginning astrophotography. And, uh, you know, we've covered we've covered a lot of different aspects of this, but what it means to truly get started, whether you're jumping over from the visual side and you've been doing astronomy for a while visually or just, hey, I want to jump in, but I just want to take pictures. You know, most people already have a camera of some sort, even if that's just uh, an iPhone or, or something like that. But a lot of people have, you know, DSLRs and lenses as well. And so that's more than enough to get started with. And that's what we're going to talk about, you know, is, is how to get under those dark skies that we mention in every single episode. That, <laughs> that's right. That life changing experience that, you know, I'm going to plug again right now, which is get out under the Milky Way, under dark skies and let it change your life because it will. Um, but yeah, it's um, this is the episode for how to get started and what equipment is needed to get started at, you know, the most base level. That's right. And now it used to be that you kind of needed to get your feet wet with telescopes and how to use them and setting them up and aligning them and all of that stuff with observing in mind. That needed that was the part where you generally started there. You thought about eyepieces and then you asked the salesman, well, what can I see with this? And he would tell you things that you could see or not see with that particular telescope. And then you would think, boy, I sure would like to take some pictures. And so, you know, you work on what you would need to do to get that because you kind of needed the base knowledge of how to operate telescopes because the learning curve for taking pictures was so high, you didn't want to take them both on at the same time. So it was always better to start learning your telescope, learning the night sky, learning how to align it first and then go and say, okay, let me see what I got to do to attach a camera to this thing. And, but nowadays I don't think that's a requirement. Do you, I mean, I think you could just jump right in, start imaging you definitely right can. away. You know, even in the short time, you know, I, I've been doing astronomy less than a decade, which blows my mind because it feels like, I mean, honestly, this like whole new chapter of my life started when I started doing astronomy, it literally changed my whole life as we've, you know, kind of told this story in multiple podcasts. But, um, you know, going into astronomy, having everything shift, but even that since that moment, 
astronomy itself and the way people do it and how they get started has changed. It's changed a lot in the last five to seven, eight years. And when I got started, it was all about versatility. And that's what you would see when people were making recommendations because imaging hadn't really picked up the steam that it has now. Now imaging has, everybody's wanting to get into it. You see all these beautiful pictures on Instagram and Facebook and all the other social media outlets. And and so it's like, it's not something that's uncommon. Now, most people have seen a space image and before nobody even had any idea that this was something that you could do from your backyard. It was like, if you saw a space image, you just assumed NASA, you know, 10 years ago, if you see it, you just assume, yeah, that was probably taken by NASA or, or some a university somewhere, but you never just thought, Hey, that's, um, that's my 12 year old neighbor. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Right. Or it could have been some rock star. Uh, I use that term relatively, uh, some rock star astro imager that was always, you were always exactly. seeing their pictures in sky and tell or, or whatever that it was had dedicated the their entire life right. and life savings to the process. <laughs> that's like all those took. things were the assumptions. And so now it's just not that anymore. And even the versatility aspect, when I jumped in, I went to, I asked everybody I could, what, what were the things I should get? What should I look for? And you get a million different answers. But one thing that came up a lot is, well, you're going to want to do both. You're going to want to do visual and you're going to want to do astrophotography. And so get something that's ultra versatile. Um, and, you know, it was, it was good advice. It was true. I didn't want to do both. But what I found and what I'm seeing more from the people getting into the hobby is that while people want to do both, the vast majority of their time spent in the hobby ends up being with imaging because it's a shareable experience where there's a community built around it um, that is a little easier to connect with because you have, you know, this evergreen content once you take a picture that you can share and you can share globally. Whereas with visual, you can absolutely still share it. It's still a great experience. You can go to star parties and, and enjoy the community, but it's then in there and then in there only. There's nothing remaining from it after the fact other than the experience and the memories of it. And so, you know, it's, it's one of those things that I think has shifted where that versatility matters less because versatility doesn't necessarily equal simplicity. And I think simplicity is starting to dominate where people want something that is practical. It's easy to take out. It's easy to set up. It's not going to be cumbersome and heavy and all of these things. Um, and it's just really reliable and you don't have to tinker with it a whole lot. So even though those original systems that, that I jumped into were ultra versatile and you could do everything with them, they were kind of the jack of all trades, master of none. Whereas if you're going to be spending 95% of your time sharing in the community, most people now are just going directly into kits designed for imaging. Yeah, and it's been probably the biggest area of growth, I think, in the in the hobby uh, ever because of the way in which the entry point is so low now that that you can start imaging straight away. So you don't have to feel bad if you don't want to do eyepiece uh, observing, although. You do miss a certain connection with your telescope in the night sky and things like that by by not doing eyepiece observing. But, you know, there's still a connection to be made through imaging. And I've slowly warmed to this, right? I Because the, the condition of most of our night skies now that most of us have to live under are sort of mitigating the any any observing, visual observing that you may want to do because it's just getting harder and harder. But it can easily be overcome by some of these imaging solutions. And so I feel a lot better about going into imaging as the, as a first time than I used to. When we first started this this podcast, the first episode we ever did the was very we talked first about one. which one was better. And it's still our most listened to episode. Maybe it's because it's the first one and nobody went to more. I hope that's not the case, but you never know. <laughs> um, yeah. but, but, you know, we talked about what why we liked visual versus uh, uh, photo, uh, imaging astronomy. And I think now my, I've sort of evolved over this uh, viewpoint. I'm always going to want an eyepiece uh, oriented telescope. That's my main telescope. And, uh, but I do see, and I actually enjoy imaging the Andromeda galaxy, for example, or the Orion Nebula, because the views I'm going to get through those, whether it's my DSLR or whether it's just my phone is uh, going to be a lot better in many cases than what I'm going to see through an eyepiece looking at it with my eye. So I've been a bit of a convert here 
if you want to go straight in, if you don't know anything about astronomy and you want to go straight into imaging, I now say, and this is a big deal if you're just listening to this for the first time, that it's okay. <laughs> go ahead and become yeah, an imager. It's, off it's the weird back. hearing you say that because <laughs> I spent the first probably seven episodes trying to um, to argue this point yeah. with you. Yep. Um, but you know, I, I agree. I think both are really important parts of the experience, and it's it's challenging though to have a phenomenal visual experience. I mean, you can have a great, especially with the planets. Don't get me wrong; you can have a great visual experience from cities anywhere in the world, if you're looking at the brightest objects, the moon and the planets, and it's limited to that. Um, if you get under dark skies, a visual experience can, I mean, you can go out every night of your life and not see it all. It's, it's amazing under dark skies, but dark skies are harder to come by and most people can't easily access them, you know, access them, um, just whenever they want, they have to make a trip of it and drive and, and plan. And then the clouds roll in and there are problems associated with it, right? Like things happen that can shut those nights down. Whereas with imaging, there are little, little tricks that you can use like narrow band filters. So who cares if the moon's out and you can get a few hours in without having to travel too far. And, you know, the triad filter was a game changer for everyone. Cause then it's like, well, I can do narrow band imaging with the color camera from my backyard and not go anywhere. So the number of nights that people use their equipment skyrockets, it goes way up. And so, um, you know, I just think that imaging has a lot of advantages, but my advice today is going to be a little different than it would have been even five years ago where I would have said, get something that's versatile so you can really see which direction you want to go. I would say the opposite now. I would say, you know, limit yourself, but limit yourself to success in the direction you plan to go. You know, because if you buy something that's simple, that's designed specifically for that purpose, your likelihood of success is going to go way up. Your uh, likelihood of frustration is going to go way down. And I think, you know, that frustration is the killer. That's what ends up putting telescopes in closets that they never get out of. And, um, I would say, you know, definitely go the route that you think you're going to enjoy the most. And you can use just about any telescope with very, very few exceptions for both types, um, visual and imaging. Um, it just takes a little more work, but if you wanted to take an imaging rig and make it visual, you could with exceptions like the Rasa, you know, but everything else, like you can make it work. And so I would say just really commit to the way you think you're going to want to go and go down that path and, and really try to enjoy the experience and, and, you know, get above that frustration curve where you're buying into all of the engineering and all of the work that, you know, the manufacturers and, and all the designers have put into making it a simple, high likelihood of success, um, you know, part of the hobby, that equipment. When you say you don't need to worry about versatility anymore or as much, what, uh, do you mean it's it's better to buy a special purpose rig for a certain thing, like a special purpose thing for observing or photographing the Milky Way or photographing nebulae or photographing the planets? You could buy specific yep. setups for each of those. Is that what you mean yes, by that? Yes, I do. Lack of versatility? It's just like, it's just like photography. Like you're never going to hear a photographer go to someone and say, um, you only need one lens. You want to be a really good photographer? Like you want to get into photography as a hobby, you're only ever going to need one lens. I've never heard that ever. And, and I never will, for, at least from any photographer that's that's really doing something epic. <laughs> um, it's just not great advice. You know, you need different lenses for different applications and different lighting and different everything. And so I think that with this hobby, because it is a photographic hobby, um, you know, the same the same advice applies. And I'd say, yeah, commit to the type that you find is most interesting to you. If it's planetary, it's a very different system than if it's Milky Way or if it's visual. These are different systems and they have different applications. And I would say, you know, I know it feels like boxing yourself in, but I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I know at face value, it feels like it. I really don't think it's a bad thing. And I think that you can really get familiarized with your system in a deeper way if you're committed to using it for the the design purpose that it was engineered for um, that you're not going to necessarily experience if you're trying to make something do everything look at your scope tony i mean do you love your scope yes right i yes. mean it's you have a 20 inch massive seven foot tall scope that is one of the least versatile telescopes i've ever seen <laughs> there's nothing about it that's versatile 
right? Right, but but it is but, ideally suited for visual right. observing. Right, for what you do, right. I mean, it would be incredibly challenging to beat. Yes. So and your experience in what it is that you enjoy, every time you go out and use it, you're going to love your hobby. You're going to love what you do because you have something that boxed you in to your interest. Right. The only though, because I am primarily a visual observer, and the the I need to overcome the limitations of the the light pollution that I live under. I have to compensate because I can't build an exposure up over time. I have to compensate for that with aperture. And so I have a 20 inch telescope that collects a lot of light so that I can see faint things with more detail. And it is really good at, I consider it my, my light pollution, you know, beater, I guess, because I can, I can get past a lot of light pollution just by having that aperture. So yeah, I'm certain there's a cooler way to describe that telescope than light pollution beater. <laughs> but <laughs> I don't I, yeah, I know I if to, you if you try hard you can come up with something guess, cooler than that. I guess the image that conjures up isn't beautiful, is it? Yeah. No. <laughs> Over, yeah, it just doesn't yeah, sound I, all that tough. Um <laughs> Light especially beater. for as epic as that telescope is that's but. one of the few that's one of the many things it does but it it is what i consider its most important attribute because i need to collect photons to get them into my eyeball so that you do i can see detail and i can't i don't simply don't my eyeballs human eyeballs do not have the ability to accumulate exposure uh at least not yet so I have to overcome <laughs> yeah. that. Well, we may invent one. I don't know. <laughs> hey, seriously, man. Seriously, we may. Um, but yeah, that's exactly, that's the limiting factor. And and so what you're describing there is, you know, the, um, the human eye, you can't change the exposure time like you can with a camera. And it's something that's very basic, but not something you think about unless you end up doing photography. Um, but that's the advantage of uh, cameras is that you can do a one second or a you know five minute or a one hour exposure and just collect light that entire time and, and it all accumulates and then your image is the sum of all of those photons whereas the human eye it basically refreshes or you know gives you an exposure time in quotes um, of one sixtieth of a second roughly so you're getting sixty exposures for every one exposure you would get um, if you're doing even one second exposure so you get a lot more light with a camera than you would with the human eye. Um, and that's why you have such a huge telescope like you're describing is so you can gather all that light at once. You know, my warning to you when I sent that scope to you, though, was, man, don't point this thing at anything bright. You're going to create a laser, shoot it out the back of the telescope. Like, yeah. The <laughs> moon is, is, is definitely blinding in that thing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. You look at the full moon with that, man, and there's just zero chance of survival. Yeah, it's pretty bright. Cast a shadow. <laughs> it's definitely dangerous. Um, yeah, don't ever let a kid look at look at the, the full moon through that thing. Yeah, that's quite a bit of photons. So the we're going to talk about specific gear here in just a minute, but may, maybe we should spend a little bit of time introducing the various sort of categories of imaging. I guess that's how I look at it. You know, there's, there's various categories of which I would say are the following, and you could add to these if you want. I think there's sure. wide field astrophotography wide field meaning getting the whole sky time lapses and there is planetary photography and then there is deep sky photography do you can you think of any others yeah i think that's fair i would say okay. that you know wide field though could be broken up into landscape as well you know like landscape wide field where you have the milky way in front of a really you know beautiful mountain or whatever you know you see a lot of those types of images which are a little little bit different because the earth is spinning and so you know, the sky has a relative motion, um, you know, as the earth spins underneath it. And so because the, the, either the land or the sky, you have to, you have to set, you know, the, even the, either your tracking mount to follow the sky or just set a tripod down. That's going to follow the earth, but it, it adds a layer of complexity when one is spinning and the other is not. Um, and then the other way would just be taking pictures of the sky wide field, like you're describing huge chunks of sky where the landscape is out of the image. It's, so the sky is isolated, which you can just track with it then and just do like, that's where you see the big stretches of the Milky Way in high detail because you can take multiple images and not have any movement in the images. Right. So I think the thing that would delineate all of this is the kind of uh, tracking that you do in exposure times. For example, 
you know, the exposure times for, uh, and the magnifications that you would use for taking a picture of Saturn or the moon or even the sun would be quite different than what you would do for, say, the Ring Nebula or the Andromeda Galaxy. And even then it would be different for the wide field taking pictures of the entire Milky Way. So all of those, I think exposure time differences, aperture things matter. So getting one scope to do all of that well, as you were just saying, isn't really a good idea. Versatility isn't going to help you here. But the good news is, I think, that the prices of all this stuff has come down to the point where you could actually reasonably get a Milky Way setup or a... um, planetary setup or you know deep sky setup and still not break the bank yeah and that's that's what i mean by the versatility thing it's not that those telescopes still don't exist i mean take the edge hd for an instance i i think this is such a phenomenal telescope i really do um from celestron it it can pretty much do everything it's probably the most versatile telescope out there um but in order to get all of those benefits you have to buy a lot of different accessories so you're going to buy the scope and then if you want to shoot at wide field you have to buy something called the hyperstar and and kind of what i was getting at isn't that this one telescope can't do it all it's that you could for the same price get telescopes that are designed specifically for those functions that are much smaller or easier more portable um like like let's say the hyperstar is roughly a thousand dollars for a thousand dollars you could get a radian 61 and shoot wide field on an apo you know refractor that's going to produce you know in my opinion much better images than something like a hyperstar even though a hyperstar is um you know is a great tool and super fast very fun to use um you know it's correction at the corners all of those things are just going to be better across large sensors on something designed specifically for it than trying to force another telescope to do that job and so that's that's what I mean is that you, you know, for the same money, you could probably get multiple lenses. You could have your photography bag, kind of how I like to think of it with, with all your different lenses and your, your tools for whatever function it is that you want to do. Um, instead of trying to force one lens to do everything. Yeah. So think a little bit about those different areas and what you think you would like to get started doing. And then you could get some pretty, inexpensive gear to help you do that. And uh, I think we should probably talk a little bit about some of the ways in which imaging works uh, Mm -hmm. and then the kind of processing you'd have to do afterward, just a basic workflow kind of thing. And then we can talk about some gear um, because I think that's important in whenever you are imaging the night sky, you need to overcome the earth's rotation. Like, uh, like Dustin just talked about, you want to, keep the telescope pointed at the same part of the sky as it appears to go over our heads. It's actually the earth turning underneath it. Uh, You want to compensate for that motion, which means that you need to either have an Altaz mount, in which case certain things will happen to your image over time, or you need an equatorial mount where you need to worry about polar alignment. There is no, I think, better way to go one way or the other uh, because there's things you can do to compensate. If you have an alt mount, for example, and you an altitude azimuth mount, and you're tracking the sky, you have to worry about this thing called field rotation, where the the field kind of rotates underneath your uh, in your image plane if you're exposing for longer than say I don't know five minutes or so. But it's not an issue if you go under that. So I wouldn't worry about that too much as a beginner. So a decent mount that overcomes the motion of the earth and that's polar aligned if you have an equatorial mount is important so you have to do that alignment and then exposure time is going to be the thing you're going to spend a lot of time figuring out how long should you expose the image for and one of the things you can do is this thing called stacking where you can take a whole lot of images of short exposure and let's say you take a 10 second exposures. You might not see see much in your individual image, but if you took a hundred of those, then those exposure times add up so that you've got an exposure of well over a minute or 10 minutes, however many of those you accumulate. And you can start to see detail and things like that. That's a huge ability to have with, uh, with them. And then of course you have to process your image with software uh, to get all of this stuff done after you've had a night observing. So there's a overview of your workflow that you're going to be doing when regardless of the kind of uh, observing you do or imaging you do whether it's the night sky whether it's the uh, planets or deep sky um 
So you want to think about, I think, what kind you'd like to get started with. And I guess, Dustin, if I had a question for you, what would be, do you think, the best place for a beginner to start? Yeah, planets are kind of its own thing because, like you mentioned, there are different types of exposures and and different ways to go about it, different magnifications that you need. And planets really end up being its own type of photography that you really have to kind of commit to uh, that direction because it requires a lot of focal length and very, very fast exposures. Essentially, live video is how that works, and which is kind of the opposite of the other types of photography we're dealing with. But and and it can be a little more expensive. Um, the cameras actually are not very expensive because they don't have to be cooled. Um, they, you know, and they those fast frame rate cameras are typically small sensors. They're not terribly expensive. So, um, you know, it's really the telescope and the mount that have to, you know, you you, you end up spending the money on. Mm-hmm. But I would say where people get started, man, ninety nine times out of a hundred, we see the same thing, and we get this question, you know, multiple times a day, and uh, people typically start with very small, very portable, can throw it in a camera bag kind of tracking head or just a tripod itself. And they go out with the camera they already own to do nightscape photography, to take pictures of the stars for the first time with the camera they already own. You know, they went to uh, Best Buy and they got a uh, Canon camera right? And they want to use it for the first time, but instead of taking pictures at the house, they just want to point it up and see what's in the night sky. We see this all the time. And, um, you know, honestly, just a really good, um, just a really good tripod and a really good, like even a pan head, a panning, um, head that you can put the camera on so that you can keep it level and you can change direction of where you're pointing at left, right, up and down. That's where most people start. And they really don't have to be expensive for like the very top end, super stable, portable tripods and, um, pan head bundles that, that we sell, we sell them on our homepage. Um, they, you know, and it comes with the radiant tripod, which is, you know, the best portable tripod we offer. Those are under $400 for, for the whole kit. That's where most people start. Um, because there's nothing to it. There's zero learning curve. It's like, well, I already have the camera. That's the learning curve is learning to use your camera, but putting it on the tripod with a panning head, then it's literally, once your camera's on there, point it at what you want to take a picture of, focus it and take the picture. And that's it. And that's how people generally get their first photos of space. And they do that. And it's a way to explore the night sky for the first time in you know deeper detail than what you could visually because you're doing these longer exposures. Like I said, even if it's one second exposures, every second you point at a different part of the sky and it's like, oh my God, there's a galaxy right there. I had no idea. There's Andromeda. There's the Orion (laughs) Nebula. You never see this stuff. And then all of a sudden you're like, look at, there's stuff all over the sky. I had no idea. You know, and so that's where people start unless they want to jump in at a little bit deeper level, which is the same kit um, just with a tracking head, like you said, the earth is spinning, which makes the sky look like it is. Um, and so you want to follow the night sky as you're doing longer exposures. Otherwise what happens if you're doing an even longer exposure than we're talking about before, like, let's say you're doing 30 seconds, then you start to see the star streak in the image. So instead what you do is you have a mount that moves the camera, the exact rate the earth is spinning and in the opposite direction so that it freezes the stars where they are as that exposure is running. And those, those tracking mounts are not terribly expensive, um, you know, and we, we sell them as kits, but that whole kit with, again, the Radiant tripod with the star tracker, um, from Skywatcher and, um, you know, the, and that's called the star adventurer, the tracker is, um, so all of the general term for these mount heads is called star trackers. And then the, uh, the ball head that goes with it, the whole kit is under a thousand dollars, actually under $800, $799 for the whole kit. Yeah, and, and that's so called like, the, uh, I just want to introduce it. That's called the OPT Star Tracker Astrophotography Bundle on their website, right. if you want to look yeah, at it. Yeah, yeah. And those are there because this question is one of the most common questions. It's just, hey, how, how do I, I don't, you know, I already have a camera, but I just want to dive in. What do I need? And so it's, this is the one button kind of way to jump in and know you have exactly what you need. Because we find that people end up building these kits over and over and over and over again, every single day on our website. So instead it's just, Hey, here's the kit that everybody's building anyway. It's just all together and discounted a little bit. If, if everything's bought together. Um, 
you know, and so that's, that's the way that most people are getting started because the learning curves are just so small. You don't have to hook a computer to it. You don't have to do any of that stuff. You don't have to bring out, I mean, they run off double A batteries. You don't have to bring like a, you know, a big car battery out with you or anything like that. You know, <laughs> we talked about Which the danger of that. People used to do before these like portable lithiums came out. Right. And you just put the camera on there and you're off and running, pointed at what you want to see. It comes with a polar scope. So your polar alignment's super easy. It's just, it's the way to get started. And honestly, even if you're not just getting started, I still use star trackers as much or more than I use, um, you know, my high-end equipment. Agreed. I have both of these. I have the, uh, the Radian tripod and the Star Trek or Star Adventurer mount. And what I don't have is this, uh, is this UA, uh, ball mount that I've, I've just ordered and I'm hoping to get that pretty soon. But the, the, uh, that is a complete, basically it's, it's a universal mounting system for any kind of telescope that isn't too heavy. You could use yeah. it for visual. You could also use it for wide field, putting your DSLR on and it'll track the sky. Uh, all of this is uh, basically a little miniature equatorial mount. And right. I can't exactly believe the quality in all of this stuff is so good that they're very lightweight and it all just works. Four double A's will run, at least it's been my experience is I've let, I've used it on an entire night and I use these, uh, what do you call them? Uh, nickel metal hydride rechargeable double A's. Mm -hmm. And on, I can run that mount on a whole night of a charge on one of those. And those are notorious for not holding a charge for very long. So, so yeah. it's, uh, you know, really portable. The whole thing is, you know, again, one look at it and you kind of know how to use it. Exactly. There's nothing to it. And that's why I love it is because you throw it in the car and it's just always there. Cause it's so small. Um, I literally have my entire kit in my camera bag. So the tripods on the side of the bag, you know, we're all just about all camera bags at this point have the slot for the tripod. And then the, the, ball head and the tracking head are inside the camera bag and I just leave that with me and so if I want to go somewhere and bring the camera it's like I don't have to have it's, it's all the stuff I already have with me my camera my lens and uh this whole kit and I can do astrophotography wherever I end up going um and it's you know for for the price tag I feel like that's a really good way to get started if somebody already owns a camera if you don't that's where the um you know, the kits that have a little more detail put into them for, you know, like high-end astrophotography or, or kits that come with the telescope, with the camera. Um, that's why we put those together. But these are designed specifically for people that already have a camera that just say, I just want to get started in astrophotography, have the camera. What else do I need? This is it. Yeah. And the Star Adventure mount, as I said, has so many features on it that out of the box, you know, more expensive, way more expensive mounts, uh, you know, have as well. Like it's got different sidereal or it's got different tracking rates. You can, whether you're tracking yeah. the sun, the moon, the stars, all of that's different, uh, different rates. And you can just dial it in on a dial and it's really simple to use. It's got a dovetail mount, a dovetail mount plus, and this, I couldn't believe it. The, the version that it has with it as a, a counterweight so that yeah. you can keep the strain off of the mount system itself so that it easy, mm -hmm. it tracks easier and you don't run your batteries down. As quickly. You can put heavier cameras on it or bigger lenses, heavier cameras, that's which, right. is, which is awesome. So yeah, it really is a complete system. And like you said, it has the different traffic tracking rates, but one that I think is really cool is that, you know, it has the lunar tracking rate, which people use for, um, you know, tracking things like the eclipse and different stuff. But um, it also has reverse tracking rates for people that do want star trails. I mean, you've seen really cool, like beautiful star trail images mm -hmm. where people do the landscape and then it's got the star trails in it. Well, that's a way if you're tracking the opposite direction, you can speed up how quickly you can grab those star trails. <laughs> really? And is so, that right? So is yeah. that for people who don't have the patience to wait for the earth to turn? They just want, yeah, exactly. they just want to hurry up and get it done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to sit there for 45 minutes. It's like, well, now you're getting star trails even faster. <laughs> I'll be darn. I didn't know they could do that. That's yep. funny. Well, it makes sense, though. I guess so, yeah, especially if you lack patience, which I guess a lot of us do in this day and age. So, uh, yeah. yeah, why why not? But so this, does, this particular bundle doesn't have a camera, and it's designed for people who already have an SLR, a DSLR. So what if you don't have one? And I just want to go into a, a brief little segment on – what is a good DSLR to get for if you want to use it for astrophotography? Do you have any recommendations? 
if you ask 50 photographers, you're going to get 50 <laughs> different answers. Yeah, um, sure I can give good. you my answer. I, What's yours? Yeah, my answer is, and it's it's definitely known. I get messages just about every single day about this. Um, I love Fujifilm cameras, um, and I was super proud of them. They got camera of the year again. I saw on camera decisions. Um, I feel like that happens every year, though, because Fuji just kicks ass, and they know it. Um, they don't make full-frame cameras, so they went from APS-C, which is under full-frame, so it's a crop sensor, they skipped full frame. I guess they felt like it was a saturated market and went directly to medium format, which is bigger than full frame. And I think on both both ends, they just absolutely crush it for like usability, for simplicity, and then just for images that that just blow you away. I love it. And they're they're not expensive. And that's the other thing, you know. You compare them to anyone else and it's less expensive, and in my opinion, much better image quality. And they've got really unique features, like they don't have a Bayer matrix or a typical Bayer matrix on their uh, APS-C sensors, which I thought was like, how innovative. Instead of having a repeating pattern of like RGGB, red, green, green, blue, over and over again, they, their pattern repeats every, I think it's like every 36 pixels instead of every four, so that you can get a little bit, bit uh, cleaner color out of your images and uh, not have quite as much color noise, those sorts of things. But they've just done a lot of innovative things to really put out um, just quality cameras. And that's why they keep, I mean, they keep winning every award that's out there, man. But I, uh, I love Fuji cameras and I have, I've been shooting them since, God, it's got to be, it's got to be 10 years now. Yeah. And you've been, ever since I've met you, you've been talking really good things about Fuji. So good. Well, I just wanted to give people a recommendation in case they did not have one. And of course you can use it for other things besides astrophotography, but this Absolutely. is- this is uh, one of those well well suited for the hobby. So look into those. Yeah, exactly. Well. And that's another one of those times where we're talking about versatility over something that's isolated specifically for astrophotography. Like a Fujifilm camera is great. It's never going to compete with a camera that's designed specifically for astrophotography, like a you know um, an FLI or a ZWO or you know a QHY or any of these cameras that have cooling. And the only purpose that they're there for is for astrophotography. I mean, those cameras. They're going to win by default every single time, but it's because they, they're only designed for that specific function and they don't have to make any concessions to anything else. Whereas, you know, Fuji cameras have to be great at astrophotography, but they also have to be great at taking pictures at the park, right? And you know, taking right. pictures for, for weddings and, and all that stuff. So um, they have to, again, be, you know, um, they, they really have to kind of just settle into what's the best versatility, not necessarily what's the best uh, functions for astrophotography. Right. So while a camera with the lenses that come with it, the 50 millimeters or the zooms or whatever it is you get with your rig uh, are great and well-suited for wide field uh, landscape photography or astrophotography of like the Milky Way or wide angle views of the sky. Um, they can also be used for planetary imaging but not with just the lenses that come with it. Um, so let's let's move just a little bit to planetary imaging. You can still use this mount that we just got through talking about this this tripod and 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 rig for imaging the planets. But you need, I think, a, a couple of other things. Would you agree? You need some kind of maybe a small refractor and some way to attach your DSLR to that. Yeah. Yeah. And actually before, before I go on, because it is okay. my job to not mislead people, you know, I just said that I use Fuji cameras and that I think that's the best for, uh, people doing imaging. You know, I'm talking about the cameras that I enjoy the most, but people getting started in the hobby, my recommendation probably would actually be, if you're just going to be using it for this and you've never owned a camera before would probably be Canon. And I don't use Canon cameras. I haven't used Canon cameras, but most of the industry does. Most of the people doing astrophotography do. And so most of the products that are available are available for Canon. And so it's something to take into consideration. There's probably 10 to 1 products available for Canon cameras that there are to Fujifilm. Okay. Um, so I should back that up a little bit and say if, there, if, if this is something that you've never done and you don't have a preference or leaning to one to, uh, or the other, then, you know, definitely consider the fact that like different filters are only going to be available for Canon and uh, different mounting options, all that stuff, because Canon is still just such a massive brand, so widely used that it's when manufacturers are making the decision, who do we provide 
this product, if we can only make one product, who do we make it for? They're always going to lean toward the camera that's most widely used. So um, that's something to consider if you're getting a camera that you think is going to be mostly used for astrophotography. Yeah, that's great advice. And I, I have to, I, I, I could back up the Canon as well. I've used, I've used several like the Rebels and a few others in the past. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Period. And People they're relatively inexpen People love expensive. Canon, man. I, I don't know much about Canon. I, I've, like I said, I've never shot Canon. Um, so I don't know much about it other than the fact that I see people take images. I mean, the one that Bray Falls just released this week, he shot a uh, Canon 6D on a uh, Radian 61. Uh, it's got the horse head and the Orion. I don't know if you've seen it yet, No, not but yet. Uh, it is just absolutely unbelievable. Like literally to the point where I, when he sent it, I was like, I didn't believe it. I'm like, there's no way you shot that on a DSLR. There's no <laughs> way. Um, and so, yeah, it's, I know they are more than capable uh, for sure. It's just not something I have much experience with. Sure. Okay. Um, yeah, I want to, toward the end of this episode, I want to talk about some resources and people you can follow uh, to see what's possible with some of the people who've been at this for a while. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, because you could learn a lot from these guys. There's a lot of really high quality people out there taking and helping others to take good images. So we'll point those out to you here in just a bit. Um, so planetary imaging, I want to, I want to talk about that just a little bit. Um, to me, this is the one of the most exciting kinds of images that I imaging that I enjoy doing the most because I can get individual details out of the planets using rel relatively inexpensive cameras. Uh, you could use a DSLR for this, but there are actually dedicated planetary imaging cameras you could buy from places like Mead and Celestron and all these other places. They actually do an outstanding job, and they don't cost a lot of money. The 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 beauty of this is that you get to use this thing called uh, high frequency imaging or basically taking a video of the planet because they're so bright through an optical system. You can use these really fast frame rates and then only select using software the best images uh, out of all of those that you out of the thousands that you might have taken. And you can assemble some absolutely breathtaking results. So. I think this is a very rewarding way to go, and it's one of my favorite ways to use uh, imaging in the in, in the hobby. So, I don't know. What do you think about all of that? Do you have some? Well, it's good that you uh, you lean toward that because it's really the only type of photography that your telescope can do. <laughs> well, yeah. you know, a good match um, me and my scope. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but yeah, I agree. As far as cameras go, if you want to not have to invest a lot in a camera and still be able to get incredible results. Planetary cameras start at like 150 bucks, and these are mm. these are really good cameras. Um, and even the top end cameras are still under a thousand, way under a thousand. I mean, five six hundred bucks gets you a camera that you can do world class imaging with, and that's that's not an exaggeration. Um, you know, as far as the other pieces of it, what you're really looking for is you want something with with long focal length and good aperture. Uh, because aperture, you, you don't want to limit your resolution. You know, you're already going to have a few things stacked against you. When you got that much focal length, that much magnification, you know, the the sky above you, the turbulence above you, we call it seeing, seeing conditions. Um, that's going to matter a lot. It's kind of like looking down a hot desert road and you see all those heat waves. You know, that's what is above you as well. You get all that moisture in the atmosphere and you're looking through that stuff. But then imagine if you were looking down that same road through a telescope you can imagine that it would amplify all those distortions and all you would be able to see is those distortions. You wouldn't even be able to see anything behind it at that point. And that's what happens when you put a lot of magnification, too much magnification um, behind, you know, bad scene conditions. And so that's something that you really have to get lucky with is the scene conditions. And that's why, that's exactly why these cameras we talk about have such high frame rates is because it's quite literally called lucky imaging, where you know the majority of the time you're looking up, uh, it's going to be really hazy. It's going to be really kind of the muddy images because the scene conditions aren't going to be perfect. But let's say you're running, you know, 20 frames every second. There are going to be tiny, tiny gaps where that scene condition just levels out for a fraction of a second and is perfect. Right. So if you're doing multiple minutes with several frames, you know, maybe several dozen frames a second. What if you only took those images where the scene conditions above you were absolutely perfect and then stacked all those together and threw away all the rest? 
you know, that's how lucky seeing works. And that's why you're running so many frames so fast is because you, you know, you're going to throw most of them away, but the ones you keep are going to be absolutely flawless and crisp. And you're going to stack all those together and get a really sharp image. That's how, that's how it works. Um, but in order to do that, again, you have to have long focal length, which means you have to have a good mount because the longer the focal length, the more any problems that exist in the mount and the tracking are going to make themselves visible. That's right. The, you're magnifying everything with high magnification. Long focal right. length equals high magnification, which equals you're magnifying all of it, not just the thing you're trying to look at. The atmosphere in between, any vibrations that happens, all getting. If you're at 100 power, you're magnifying everything else by 100 times. So uh, it, it's something to definitely consider. I've always called what you're talking about, lucky imaging, is the poor man's adaptive optics because there are... Yeah just one, maybe a few tiny percent of the thousands of images that you're going to take will be any good. And you, and the good news for you as a beginner is you don't have to do this manually. Uh, you, there's, there's software, some of it free that you can get that will select these images for you and stack them up, uh, into a really nice picture. And you'll be amazed at the results. Um, it's so you don't, a, it's, isn't, I mean, you've seen it happen. Isn't it wild? How yeah. different, even, in, even within the same second, you can have two images that look nothing alike. Yes. Because one is just absolutely crisp and the other is just throwaway garbage. Yeah, most people don't think about it, but our very thin atmosphere above the earth is roiling constantly. Uh, in yeah. the summertime, it's really bad. And then with that's why everybody likes the high mountains, then cold temperatures, because the air gets very stable and that, that boiling of the atmosphere is at its minimum. Uh, you don't get so much of that. But uh, everywhere you go, it's it's going to be a problem. And, and Fortunately, there's really inexpensive ways to overcome those limitations or overcome those yeah, problems. It's, it's, it's not bad. And I mean, you can see all the different cameras that exist. There are a lot of cameras that exist um, for this uh, on the OPT Corp website. I mean, we have a planetary cameras and solar cameras page under the cameras tab. And when you pull that up, it's shocking how inexpensive these cameras are. And what's even more shocking if you've never seen one is how tiny they are. <laughs> when they show up, they look, they look fake. I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're barely bigger than, I mean, what, like maybe your thumb, the whole yeah. camera, it's probably like the size of your thumb. It, it's tiny. And, uh, this thing is completely contained. It, it, you know, it has zero buttons on it. It's just a USB coming off of it to run to your computer. The computer pulls in all those frames and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a really fun way to do it. And the same cameras that work for, planetary also work for solar. They just obviously have to be protected behind a solar telescope or a solar filter. Right. Now the, these cameras, uh, unlike your DSLR don't have lenses. So you need to put them on a telescope to act as a lens for it. So, um, let's talk about that just a little bit. Are there some, this I think is where the biggest difference is going to be, whether you use a planetary imaging or if you're doing deep sky imaging, um, so I don't know how you want to handle that, but do you want to talk about a good planetary scope maybe for imaging or is there a good scope that does both? Yeah. yeah. So uh, generally what people need is long focal length. Most, most people use SCT. So Smith Cassegrain telescopes, mm -hmm. um, that would be like the Celestrons, the Meads. Um, we have a few Orions. People use the TPO-RCs a lot because of the value. Um, they're not very expensive. And RCs, you know, are they have a great reputation for just uh, very uh, clear, you know, crisp images. That's a telescope um, so, design. It's called Richie Creighton. So yeah, just, exactly. What RC exactly. stands for? And yeah, the TPO ones are phenomenal. Um, they're, they're very challenging to get right now. Supply chains are just so messed up, man. So imagine. messed up globally. Um, with everything everything um you know i have i have a friend that was just telling me he's like i've been trying to buy a car for like four months and i just oh, can't I know. find one right now <laughs> i'm like man you're, you're preaching to the choir i know all about it even our industry the small telescope industry is feeling the same thing but yeah the um those telescopes are great but really what you're looking for is aperture and magnification which is kind of the opposite of what we were talking about earlier um so you know bigger is generally going to be uh, better and so is longer focal length and people typically look for things like a smaller central obstruction which is your secondary mirror something that's blocking the light path in through the front of the telescope so that you get better contrast in your images um, but that stuff all really like that one those those worries those concerns are a little bit secondary to the other ones 
Um, no pun intended there, but they, uh, <laughs> Secondary, they I got it. are, yeah, they are, um, you know, what you really want is a telescope that, you know, isn't so big that you're not going to want to take it out or anything like that. But, but honestly, just get a bigger telescope and apply the rules of visual astronomy. If you do that, you're going to find a good telescope for, uh, planetary imaging. Honestly, like that's a good way to think about it. If it's good for visual, it's probably going to be good for planetary imaging because visual, you need that aperture and generally people want that focal length. <laughs> There's so much to cover in a beginning episode that we're not going to hit all of it, but I would, I would like to just sort of summarize a little bit. So you want a halfway decent tripod, halfway decent mount. We'll get you, we'll get you pretty far. This, this bundle that we talked about was definitely good for beginners and gets you well, well into planetary imaging, especially if you either use a DSLR or one of these planetary cameras with a small telescope attached to the end of it, whether it's a, a Schmidt Cassegrain optical tube assembly or something, Richie Creighton uh, uh, design, whatever it happens to be, uh, those would be really great for looking at the, the planets with and even some deep sky objects. And these cameras are, are while the planetary ones especially are, are not very expensive, the deep sky ones where, where I think we should go next, that's a category that has to meet a lot of very specific requirements because the things you're going to be looking at are incredibly faint. They're way down in magnitude. You, in some cases, cannot see them through an eyepiece with your eyeball. Uh, so you need a large aperture telescope with a relatively wide field of view. We call this fast. In, in, in a lot of uh, optical tube assemblies, they're very fast, wide field, can see a lot of different things. These, it's it's... It's counterintuitive, but in telescope design, a long focal length is actually quite easy to make. Get high magnification is much easier to make than to build something that is very wide field. You know, it's like mm -hmm. to design an optical system that can see a big area of the sky requires a lot of complicated uh, machining and or optical uh, creation or optical figuring. So... <clears throat> these scopes tend to be more expensive. They tend to gather more photons and the cameras associated with them need to also be physically large so that they can collect all of the stuff that the short focal length telescope can see. So these have a lot of advantages and, and, but they also tend to be the upper range of astronomy imaging gear. Would you say? Yeah, so it's definitely going to be more expensive, um, you know, than the $150 price point that we were talking about before, but it's because they have a lot more features. Um, for one, the sensors tend to be bigger. So whereas the sensors for planetary start very, very small, I mean, um, you know, the size of a penny, you know, or even smaller for some of them, mm -hmm. just very, very small. You'll see that, um, you know, these these sensors get very large, even into medium format, which is larger than full frame. So they get they get very large. Um, they're much higher resolution. So one of the most popular cameras right now is called the ZWO 6200. And that camera is I think, 62 megapixels, which is really come looking at this from five years ago, a 62 megapixel camera for four thousand dollars would have been people would have laughed at you if you said that would have been possible. You know, they would have just been like, yeah, right. Maybe 50, $54,000, you know, <laughs> but, but 62 megapixels is like ungodly big. You can print on the side of a skyscraper with 62 megapixels. Right. So, um, you know, it's just monstrous resolution. Um, but what people look for in deep space cameras is the first thing you're going to look for is cooling. You're going to be doing longer exposures, which means you're going to be accumulating more heat, more therm thermal noise in the camera sensor. And so that stuff will show up in your images. So what you want to do is you want to get that sensor as, as cool as you possibly can, especially in the summertime, and really just keep the whole thing cold. And that, uh, that keeps that noise out of the images. So um, you look for cooling, which makes the cameras bigger in size. They're not going to be these tiny little micro cameras. They're going to be a little bit bigger. Um, because, you know, the back half of the camera is just a big uh, Peltier cooler and, you know, you've got uh, passive cooling on as well, but that those structures have to be there on the camera to pull that heat away. So um, cooling is generally the first thing. And the other thing is, you know, you really you get a lot more people wanting to go with monochrome cameras when it comes to deep space stuff so that they have a little more control over their filter usage, because um, obviously color cameras already have filters on them. I say, obviously, it's 
it's obvious if, if you've been doing it a long time, but if not, you know, it may not be, but that's how color cameras give you color images is they have color filters already on the pixels um, in a repeating pattern called a Bayer matrix that goes red, green, green, blue over every single pixel. Um, but, you know, because it already has filters and filters don't bring things in, they keep things out. It means you're rejecting light. And so you don't want to have any filters that you don't absolutely have to have. And so people, um, you know, in order to get the most possible photons, we'll get monochrome sensors that don't have those filters on there so that they can only use the filters they want to. Specifically, like they can make every pixel on there with a red filter, gather red photons, right? Or, you know, hydrogen alpha specifically without having those green and blue uh, reject, you know, half of the pixels or more um, just by by existing on the color sensor. So you get a lot more people going the monochrome route on, on color cameras, or I'm sorry, on uh, cooled cameras. Right. And we're going to have a whole episode on filters coming up because that is a, that is a topic that we can dive it's a really deep, deep topic. Into. Yeah. There's a lot to talk about there. And it's something that I think is very confusing for people too, not just the types of filters, but even the sizes and which ones work and which yep. filter wheels and do you even need them and all that stuff, you know? Yeah. So that's something as a beginner, you don't need to worry about right away, but these are things that you will eventually start thinking about as you get better in the hobby. Um, and then there's also this, situation where you might want to think about CMOS detectors versus CCDs. That's also an entire episode. So, so, but for the purposes of beginning and getting started, uh, I think the scale of all of these different ways uh, should give you some information, uh, of where to get started. And I would just say that, you know, on a, on a personal level, one of the things that I I'm starting to admire as I get older and I see what people have done with various things in their hobbies or just their general skill levels is when people start to really commit to a single thing and do it really, really well, the results are just astonishing. I, as a silly example, I was watching this show about people in Japan who were really into ramen. I mean, they loved ramen and these chefs dedicated their entire life to making good bowls of ramen and nothing else. They didn't think about any other kind of food. And I thought to myself, you know, that is spectacular because here's a person who does one thing and does it really well. And one of the things you're going to discover in astro imaging is that there are people out there who are like that. Let's say you just love the planet Saturn <laughs> and you just wanted to get the best pictures of the planet Saturn. You can become known for that. You can be the Saturn guy. And to, you know, dedicate yourself to one small aspect of it. So that, and, and it could be really, really cheap to do some of these things. It doesn't have to cost a lot of money. So I wouldn't worry so much about being all things to all people. It's great to learn all the different aspects of the hobby. And you should definitely do that if you're so inclined for anywhere from taking pictures of, of wide area uh, landscapes all the way down to just a section of a nebula. You know, that's totally fine. But uh, there's lots of ways we could take this hobby going forward in the future because the barriers are so much lower. So yeah. I would encourage you to look at all of these things when you get started. We're going to have more episodes on this. We're going to talk a lot more about filters and CCDs and CMOS and what all of those different terms mean. But for today, the the things that we've talked about, I hope, you know, will give you a good leg up and, and where to at least start. And these kits that are on optcorp.com are the best places to, to begin. And, um, you know, and I would always encourage people to, to get in touch with them and ask questions as well. Should, to end the episode though, Dustin, I think we should probably talk a little bit about Stellina and EV scope. Do you think? Yeah, let's talk about Stellina. Let's talk about, um, the EV scope. You know, these, these are talk about innovation. Right. I mean, they came out, they pissed everybody off uh, when they came out. Because, they did, didn't they? <laughs> man, I still don't get it. I still don't. Like, even today, I don't get it. Like, how can we all love this hobby so much and be so angered by innovation and uh, new opportunities for new people? I, I just don't understand where people's frustrations come from in that. Um, and it's not like it changed anything. They're both wildly successful telescopes, but yes, at first there was, there was some drama around it where the community, you have half the community saying, finally, something that's truly 
set it and forget it. Just turn it on. A kid can use it from the second it comes out of the box. Um, and then the other half of the community saying, this is destroying the hobby. I would never buy this. They're just trying to rip people off and all this stuff. And I'm like, where does this anger and hate come from for new products? You don't like it, man. Don't buy it. You know? Yeah. yeah. I don't know where it comes from. These are these are telescopes from two companies. Stellina is put out by a French company called Veonis. And the, uh, the EV scope is put out by a company called Unistellar. These are one-shot packages where you buy the telescope and it does – they're imaging telescopes first. You turn them on, it finds the where it is in the sky, it finds out when it is, it gets the date, the time, all this stuff by GPS. You just turn it on and then tell it what you want to image and out comes an image on your phone that you can do all kinds of things with. They're they're not cheap, they're they're but they are, they are not cheap. What yeah. high quality. I mean they're all they they do what they do very well. And I've never seen a lower bar to entry for imaging in my life. Um, look into those. Uh, you can get them on. You've used board. them quite a bit too, right? I've both. used them both. Um, I haven't used the new ones. They've come out with newer right. ones since. But um, I've used both the Stellina and the uh, EV Scope. And I have to say that the, the early EV Scope used to have a electronic eyepiece on it. They've since taken that off. But the... Um, it was, I, I, I personally enjoyed using the Stellina better. It was a better experience, uh, but it was also a thousand dollars more. So, um, but the, the quality and the, and the imaging that, that I got from that was just stunning. I mean, I literally, I put it on the back, the tailgate of my truck, the Stellina, both of them actually, but the Stellina I put on the back of my truck, turned it on. And I had a picture of M31, the Andromeda galaxy that I just took my breath away. And I, then I had to do M57. I thought, well, what's the Reagan Nebula like? And, and so I had to do all these, Oh, what's M1. Can I see M1? That's the one that always was the challenging one for me to see visually. Absolutely. Uh, the Crab Nebula. And so, you know, boom, there it is. And it's like, there this it is, is exactly from anywhere. It's <laughs> yeah. amazing on my phone. And then of course I could just send that off to any kind of social media I wanted. So, um, yeah. And, and you can, with all of these scopes connect to other phones. If you're near one, you know, you could have a great gathering of family or friends over, you can all connect to the telescope and get the image on your phone. So it's quite revolutionary, I think. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and finally, because we promised, uh, we should talk about people to follow. You want to talk about some really good imagers that people should learn about on Astro, uh, different Astro uh, social media? Uh, yeah, I've got another two minutes here before the okay. next, uh, I've got a meeting to jump into. Man, I've always got hard stops. I apologize. Uh, I know. Always. That's not a problem. Not a problem. Uh, uh, but yes, I do. Um, I think that, you know, Trevor, uh, one of my one of my best friends, great guy, uh, Astro Backyard, you know, he is definitely somebody that I can tell you, just one of the most genuine people I've ever met in my life. And he is as committed to this hobby as anyone I've ever seen. So somebody that gives you great advice and just kind of shows you the process of getting into the hobby, Astro Backyard on YouTube, go check that out. Um, just absolutely kills it and taking images that, um, I don't know, I'll, I'll catch him one day. I'll catch him yeah. one day. But uh he, uh, another great friend of mine, uh, Tagback TV on YouTube, very different. You know, he has um, another massive following. I think it's like a million people on YouTube, but for good reason. One of the most entertaining people ever. And, um, you know, he plays video games on YouTube and just talks with the community while doing imaging and showing space images. So it's very different. But if you're into gaming and you're into astrophotography and you want to just hang out and have something that's in the background that's relaxing and a, a funny guy to listen to, um, Tagback TV, just a, a great channel to follow. And then, of course, Bray Falls, who we mention on here all the time because he's just he's legendary in um in jumping into the hobby, you know, at an early age, now he's just cranking out APODs. Like every, every image it takes, I feel like he gets an APOD. And then of course, Galactic Hunter, which is obviously, you know, the, um, on the Galactic Hunter on YouTube, they're doing just, I'm telling you, hanging out with them in the desert was one of the best experiences ever. They're just such great people. Um, Antoine's one of the funniest people I've ever met ever. <laughs> and, uh, just really, really, entertaining channel with great information, very honest information as well, where if they don't like something, they'll tell you. And if they do, they'll tell you that too. And they, they expose the problems just as much as they expose, you know, the new innovations and everything else. So 
I think, um, you know, just to name a few, because I'm running out of time, I wish I could name them all. But those are some of the top ones that I feel like are really, really great places to start, depending on the direction you go and check them all out and see which one you connect with most. But, right. um, yep. you know, we'll, we'll name a few in each of these episodes so that we can really just kind of um, get people out there, you know, checking out the different channels and seeing things that people are doing because so many people are committed to sharing this hobby and in a meaningful way and are doing a great job at it. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dustin. On behalf of Dustin Gibson, I'm Tony Darnell. Thank you all so much for listening. And as always, keep looking up. Space Junk is produced by Deep Astronomy and sponsored by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California. Please visit our website at spacejunkpodcast.com. Also, please send any questions and comments or ideas for new episodes to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com.